Everybody, welcome to tonight's edition of Wireside Chat, uh, where my co-host, Melissa Hart, and I are joined by two guests. Um, first, we have Beth Revis, who is a New York Times and USA Today bestseller with novels written for adults and young adults in fantasy and sci-fi, including two Star Wars titles, comic books, and multiple series of her own. She is a fully hybrid author, blending traditional publication with self-publication, and has published eight novels, with three more contracted through traditional publishers, and has self-published four novels and a nonfiction series on writing. She has also published two titles with Storyloom, an interactive fiction company, The Global Quest, and Ghost in the Machine. And she has worked in a number of capacities for game uh, companies uh, that she can't really tell you about in detail, or else we will all have to apparently be killed. Um, and uh, we're also jo joined by Joseph Whitworth. Uh, Joe has worked as a 3D modeler and programmer at Back Alley Games and served as a lead game designer at Mosh Games. He has taught at SNHU for six years and studied game design and development for around 15 years. He has two huskies and a blackmouth cur whom he loves dearly. He enjoys primitive camping, fishing, and building furniture. When he's not doing any of that, he is usually renovating his house. Joe, what is primitive camping? Primitive camping is is basically going into the forest with barely anything, um, and you kind of make your own shelter. Uh, sometimes wow. I do it with a hammock and my husky. Um, actually, last winter, my husky and I got caught in a snowstorm, um, and all I was in was my hammock, and I had my husky kind of curled up at my feet, and uh, we had the, flame, the fire going and stuff. It was really fun, but kind of scary wow. at the same time. Have, but have yeah, we ever... just... Have you ever read To Build a Fire? <laughs> uh, no, I have not. <laughs> You've never read that story by Jack London? Spoiler alert, nope. it does not go well. <laughs> uh, <okay>. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, you just, you, uh, uh, what you catch is what you eat, basically, while you're there. So squirrel, fish, all that good stuff. Wow. So on yeah. the one hand, you're you're a guy who's into primitive camping. On the other, you're you're like a, a, a coder. And you're you're <laughs> adept with all things technical. I, I try to bounce around a little bit. My uh, my wife actually calls me a serial hobbyist uh -huh. uh, because okay. I just collect hobbies of all sorts of stuff. Like I've got music and fish tank and all right. sorts of stuff. So <laughs> that, that's that's better than the other kind of serial. Oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> and what what about you, Beth? Are you a, are you a, a primitive camper? <laughs> no, <laughs> I am from the Appalachian Mountains, so I've had squirrels oh, okay. before, but not a choice. <laughs> right. You're if you come from the Appalachian Mountains, then you're kind of an honorary primitive camper, I think. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a little bit in my blood, but uh, <laughs> I would happily take a hotel. <laughs> and I, I don't know about you, Melissa, but I, I think my camping days are behind me. Oh, no. I really? was just. I was just telling Joseph just the other day, I learned how to build a snow shelter while I was on ski patrol in case I ever get trapped oh my up there. Crawl into the igloo and stay warm. Oh, so yeah. you're a member of the ski patrol? Yeah. What does that mean? Are you are you like given a, a sidearm or do you have like a bow and arrow <laughs> or you're out there or what? Well, no, but now I'm going to ask for one. I, I, do have a, <laughs> I have an axe. And a shovel. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> and an extra wow. roll of toilet paper for anybody who might need it. <laughs> Why do I have to go with in the zombie apocalypse? <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. You're well. You're well prepared. Uh -huh. <laughs> so the the topic of our of our chat tonight is um is uh, opportunities for writers in the gaming industry, and not just opportunities for writers, but just like what is the place of a writer in the gaming industry and and how do writers and game design people um, kind of interact with each other and what what gave me the idea for this um, for this chat is over the summer uh, Joe was instrumental in um, creating and running a game design challenge for SNHU students where we had creative writing students and game design students who collaborated on on projects um, and Joe, can you can you talk a little bit about like what 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 were the unexpected discoveries of that in terms of like how how these groups of students were able to work together and and maybe like how does that reflect the the, the way the industry itself works? 
Well, so the, the most difficult part uh, for me in kind of initially writing the challenge when we were working together on it was finding the balance between the game designers and the writers. So in the industry, the writers are much more secondhand. Um, when a game's being developed, it's not the writer writes a story and it's the game designer's job to envision that story. That's not really how that works. It's quite the other way around. It, the writers are working off of what the designers are doing, um, trying to create that experience for the player because the player person playing the game is the protagonist right so they need to write those stories based on that ideology so trying to find the balance in the game design challenge to where the writers and the game designers were more at the same level um because i didn't want one group of students to outshine another right um i wanted it to be as as level as possible so that was the real challenge in, in writing those assignments and stuff as you know paul um because yeah. paul was instrumental in it as well but um so once we kind of got started with the game design challenge and the students started working together it was uh, it was it was relatively balanced i saw in some elements where the writers were kind of going a little bit beyond what the game designers were doing in some instances but it also kind of reflected the opposite direction as well with certain assignments um and i thought it brought out a nice balance of course it was the very first run of the challenge so there's going to be speed bumps <laughs> right. but um but for the most part i i'd say it was pretty level there were you know your average teamwork kind of issues and stuff uh combating ideas and uh, creative you know uh freedoms with on this end but other people who didn't really like those creative freedoms that they were taking um but i think it was extremely successful um it was an amazing opportunity for myself and all of the students that were partaking in it um and I do know that several students have been emailing me asking if we're going to be running the challenge again. Um, and my answer is we want to, but we don't know when that's going to happen, um, if it is going to happen. But we do have plans or desire to, should I say? Yeah, um, I, I would say if anybody is interested in participating in that, just keep your eyes peeled because there, there will be an announcement once we've kind of smoothed out uh, the uncertainties about when it will run. And, and yeah. I, I mean, it's something we're all very uh, committed to doing. So, so Beth, uh, as, a, as a writer going into the gaming world, what were some of the kind of adjustments that you had to make? What surprises did you encounter? I definitely did get to the impression that the writing was almost not secondary, but the programming came first. And part of the reason for that is that the art and the programming and all of those elements take so long to prepare. And so I couldn't just, you know, willy nilly change a character's hair color or expression or the location because those have already had hundreds of hours of man labor put in to program it. So I had to work a lot with the constraints of what the the developers had already come up with. And then the, the second part that kind of, you know, surprised me was that I couldn't be as expressive as I wanted to be. Like I would want, I tend to err on the side of more detailed, like dialogue descriptors and, and things like that. And it was a very straightforward, like it's just the dialogue. I don't have to describe the setting at all because it's already visual. I don't have to describe the tone because the programmers will change the facial features to fit the, the dialogue and things like that. So it was much more of a bare bones structure that is very different from my normal novel writing. Mm -hmm. So let me ask you, did you find that having that experience then impacted the way that you write novels? To a certain extent, it did, because I needed to make every word that I wrote count. And mm -hmm. I couldn't just have these throwaway lines of dialogue that you can easily rely on in novels where you can just have a little bit of a conversation and banter and things like that. And it was much more straight to the point, get the dialogue out, the, the meat of the decision needed to be in the player's hands. And it, it was a little bit of letting go of control. Mm -hmm. So one thing that Joe mentioned that I thought was really interesting, and I think this is a kind of a distinguishing characteristic, is that in games, the, the player is the protagonist. Um, mm -hmm. But and I, that kind of makes me wonder, like in books, are readers the protagonists in any sense, do you think? Is there is that kind of a similarity between gaming and, and like writing or reading? 
Yeah, there, there is a little bit of an element to that, especially with the um, the Storyloom choose your own adventure style novels that I'm doing now for a computer program. You you play as the main character and it's like a choose your own adventure where you pick the different things. So in a way, that's more like a traditional novel. But I also have to factor in the times when the character will make a choice or the reader will make a choice. I don't really want them to. And mm-hmm. so I kind of have to to make these pitfalls like, OK, well, if the story is going to go in this direction, I have to change everything to match that. So even in that aspect, I lose control, whereas in a novel, I can set things up. And I can do things like the Chekhov's gun where like, I know that's going to be important. So I'm going to mm-hmm. seed it in here. And I can't do that as much in a video game because the the protagonist, the player may not notice it or they may not think it's important or they may not go back to it or pick up on the clue I want them to pick up on. So there's there's a lot of less control even in the reader author interaction as well. So that kind of control then has to come from the game design side rather than the writers. Is that is that right, Joe? Uh, yeah, for the most part. Um, I have seen it done the other way. Um, where the, And this is actually how we approach the game design challenge as well a little bit more to kind of even that playing field. Was we had the writers write descriptions of the characters and then the, the artists and designers then kind of use those descriptions and pass lore and history. Like uh, when this character was young, he got he got scratched on his face. So when he's older, he'll have a scar there kind of thing. So we took that approach to kind of level that playing field a little bit. Um, and I was actually going to ask Beth if there were any ever any instances of that where, you know, they took your description into a character, kind of the, the reverse side of that. Uh, with Story Alone, because I get to, to guide it a little bit more, I can kind of pick the character descriptions and the general body types and things like that. Uh, for the the work that was with another uh, major computer house, I can't say the name of, yeah. um, that it was very much not the case. They were just like, here, they gave me art files and they're like, here are your assets. Here is the outline of the story. Write the dialogue to fit into it. And I, I really uh-huh. had no, no allowance on that at all. Okay. Yeah. That's pretty typical in my experience anyways, for sure. Yeah. So, um, Obviously, you, you you did this work for the for this um, large gaming company, uh, and had to sign some kind of non-disclosure agreement. How yeah. common in the in the gaming industry for writers is that kind of agreement? And can you tell us a little bit about like what does that mean a non-disclosure agreement? So a non-disclosure agreement means that I can't say who I worked with and what I did for the company. I can tell you that I wrote a script for a video game company, but that's vague enough that nobody can piece together who and what it is. Um, And in some ways, that was advantageous to me because it was not my traditional, um, what I'm known for in writing books. It was a very different type of genre. So it's not like any of my readers would go seek out this video game based on my name. It's not like anybody playing that game would have known who I was. Um, but the non-disclosure agreement seems to be a pretty common factor, especially with video games that aren't out yet, because I was working on a script for something that was not going to be released for almost a year. So they really didn't want any details disclosed about it. So I couldn't accidentally spoil players or uh, release trade secrets or anything like that. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's such a it's so strange. I mean, it's a creative endeavor that that is taking place alongside you know, the writer doing their work. But I'm, I mean, writers aren't really worried about trade secrets. You know, we're, we're you know, we care about copyright, but we're not really worried that somebody is going to rip off our idea because we can. I'm not. Are you, Melissa? Oh, I, I run into students all the time who are worried. Oh, students are often worried about it, but it's not a it, I mean, I don't find that that's a, a legitimate I don't want to say legitimate, but I think it's a worry that once you explain to students what the reality is, that they become a little less concerned about having their idea ripped off. Whereas in the in the tech world, I'm getting the impression that it might be very different, mm-hmm. that, in fact, your idea might be ripped off and that yeah. you need to be very, very careful about that. Is, is that right, Joe? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'm actually under two NDAs right now with two separate companies that I'm consulting for. Um, so I'm, I'm in the same boat. I can't. I'm not supposed to talk about who the company is, where they're from, what games they're working on, um, because it is a big deal, especially with games where you really do have a unique idea or a unique mechanic that you really don't want to let slip out there because, you know, somebody else might take it. Like, for example, are you all familiar with the game No Man's Sky by chance? Yes. 
um, I said, I said, you're uh, science fiction, so I'm not surprised. But um, there, uh, like uh, Sean Murray, brilliant, brilliant programmer, um, developed an algorithm to procedurally generate a uh, universe. Um, and there's 18 quintillion different planets that the player can visit. And it's wow. all there's no loading screens. It's all free flying. So you can fly down, land on the planet, fly up. Um, you can manipulate the terrain, like dig down into the planets, make big holes, building all sorts of fun stuff. So wow. if that was if his algorithm got, you know, leaked somewhere, somebody else could have made something similar to that. Maybe not as good, but something similar released it. Then the hype wouldn't have been built up so much for No Man's Sky. Right. Yeah. So that's kind of the, the whole premise behind those NDAs, um, right. just protecting the hype, so to speak. <laughs> and and the money, right? Because these yep. game, these are games that cost that could cost tens of millions of dollars to oh, to, to create, right? And, and you know, now that I think about it, there is kind of a similar situation with writers. Like if a, if you know the new novel by you know say Stephen King comes out, the publisher is going to hold like a, a no, it's not exactly a non disclosure agreement, but I mean you cannot release what what is there until the official release date it might go out to reviewers but reviewers are not supposed to like you know immediately turn around and sell their copy of stephen king's new novel you know they have to keep a lid on it um they can just read it and write their review yeah yeah basically the Mm -hmm. same idea for sure yeah So Beth is 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 like is this is this now do you think a part of your um of the professional career that you're that you're building for yourself as a uh, a full-time writer? Uh I, I definitely like having it in my back pocket. Um it, there are some advantages and disadvantages of doing uh script writing for a video game and one of the advantages is it is the restrictive nature of it. Like they give me the outline. I know exactly how many lines I had to count the exact number of lines to fit in with the the dialogue and the programming. So I couldn't write over or under or anything like that. And it was so regimented that I was able to sort of do it in my off time. And it wasn't one of my creative, like it didn't take, this sounds bad, but it didn't take a lot of the brain work on it because I was just sort of fulfilling the role on it. So it was a way to be creative without completely burning myself out and adding a little bit of something extra to build and to bolster up my career and my CV and have extra credits under my belt. Right. And it, yeah. it probably pays pretty well. I would imagine. <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> the one with the tightest NDA. There's a reason they have a tight NDA on that one. <laughs> right. <laughs> I guess that you know we're we're kind of talking about the writers and the and the designers being two separate groups of people, but you know I'm I'm thinking about the comic book world where that used to be the case, right? You would have like the writers and and the artists, but then you've got these maverick figures like you know like Joe Kirby who who did it all, right? He was like I don't need a writer, I'm my own writer, um, and he you know he wrote some incredible stuff, um. And I, I'm wondering, is is that the, are there people like that in the in the gaming world who just like I'm going to do everything? Um, actually, it's it's funny you say that because there absolutely is. Um, I mean, especially recently with how more readily available uh, developing games has become, um, you have people making full games with just one developer, and they make all the art assets, all the everything. But often in the game industry. Writing isn't always necessary, uh, too. It really depends on the type of game that you're making. If well, how how could it not be necessary? I don't understand that. Isn't there always well, some interface that you need writing for? Uh, there is, but they don't always seek out professional writing uh, uh, to do it. Uh, typically, it'll be a programmer that has the least amount of programming to do, and they'll be like, here, look, you need to write this stuff. And they'll send them off and go do it. <laughs> That kind of um, makes me cringe to hear that. Yeah, it's it's not always great. Um, that's how you get things like Resident Evil 2, where there's dialogue that just is dreadful. But, you know, that was the time. That's that's what they did. So. So, so Beth, if let's just say that 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 I am interested or that Melissa is interested in in kind of expanding our portfolio into the game writing business how would we do that 
Yeah, that's a great question. Um, with my first ones with the larger company, I was referred to by other authors um, and like it was just sort of an in, in-house networking. It had nothing to do with my agent. Um, my agent actually wasn't a part of that deal. And part of that was the reason for that was because my name wasn't even on it. Um, so it's not something you have to have an agent for, which is a great place for those of you trying to break into the market. This could be a really good opening because it is a way to to get some professional experience without necessarily having to jump through the hoops of a literary agent. Um, so for those deals, I, I just kind of had the network and was referred to it. But then once I started looking into it, there will be very commonly posts of video games. So just look for the video games, the programmers and the developers that you're interested in and the genres that you're interested in. They'll post things for writing, even like Blizzard will post things mm -hmm. asking for writers or looking for either on project or on site. Um, yeah. And that's actually how I ended up with Storyloom is that I was just looking for that kind of work and came across a website that was looking for writers. And I applied immediately because it was a great opportunity. So are those are those job postings that appear on the website of the company itself or are they pub, pub, are they posted like on Twitter or where do they where do you find them? I've mostly found them looking at the website of the programming companies themselves, but every once in a while, because I follow a lot of developers and other writers who work in this kind of still style, they'll they'll retweet and say, oh, we're hiring at such and such company. And then I'll click through and look through it. And it's a lot once you start looking for it, it's a lot more common than you think. Mm hmm. I'll bet it's also the kind of thing that like, you know, once you get your foot in the door a little bit, a lot, the door's just going to open up a little bit wider. Yeah. Yeah. The the NDA ones, it actually led into three projects because those programmers went to different houses and they kept my name as a contact. Mm -hmm. And oh, so nice. I was able to continue working with other people. Yeah. Very cool. Melissa, is that something that you would have any interest in? Would you be a writing, a game writer, do you think? No, I write in so many genres. I I can't fit one more in. <laughs> <laughs> I just don't have time. Well, what, if, yeah. what if they came up to you and they were like, you know. Oh, look at, look at Paul showing the money. <laughs> hey, I do have a comic book coming out next year, though. You have a yeah. comic book coming out. Well, tell us I about that. Awesome. That's pretty exciting. <clears throat> yeah, I wrote it. This is a sad story. I wrote it four years ago. Um, Macmillan's educational wing came to me to write it. It's a long, long book, um, graphic nonfiction on media literacy for middle schoolers. And I got to write all the text. The thing is like 400 pages long. Oh my gosh, wow. The text. It took me about a year and a half because the learning curve was so steep. And it's been with the artist ever since because it's such a mammoth book. Yeah, but it really comes out next year. Oh, that's so exciting! Well, please keep us keep us informed. Oh, I will. Yeah, we'll have you back to talk about it. We'll have we'll talk we'll have like a special wire side that's devoted to like graphic novels or graphic yeah. fiction and nonfiction. That would be awesome. Oh yeah, I love those forms. Yeah, um, me too. Now I actually did have a question uh, for everyone. Um, now I do know uh, from my personal experience that getting into writing for games is extremely difficult. Like, you know, as Beth said, uh, the networking was the most important thing. And I think it's really a focus on it being extremely difficult to show that you're good at it. Like with a 3D model, for example, when you're looking at a 3D model, a model, you can objectively look at it and say, wow, this artist really knows what they're doing. But when it comes to writing, it's so much different than that. So do any of you have advice for potential future writers that wanted to get into the more difficult fields, how they can stand out from other writers that are trying to do the same thing. I think one way to stand out, particularly in that area, is to be able to prove that you can write very quickly. Because for the companies that I worked with, it wasn't necessarily, this sounds bad, but it wasn't necessarily a matter of quality because they had an editor who would just change everything for me. It was a matter of getting it done on time on their schedule. Because if I was late, I held everyone else up. So having a provable track record of I can do this within this time frame was probably more essential than anything else. Yeah. How, how, did, how did you develop that ability to be able to to, to, to write so quickly uh, to to you know to um, account? That that partly came from um, working as a reputation um, through Star Wars because I had to write whole novels within a month, and so I I kind of 
was able to build on that. And like, I, I proved, I was like, I worked with Star Wars, I did this. But then when I was interviewing for the position, they asked me if I could meet the deadline. And I said I could. And they gave me a trial the first time around of for one week, like this is just your one week, one shot, quick thing. And I, I did it ahead of schedule. And I think oh, that's wow. got the job. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's yeah, awesome. I'm not, I'm not all that surprised. Uh, deadlines are incredibly crucial in the game industry. Um, <laughs> so that makes a lot of sense that they would give you that trial to see how quickly you could write something. Um, thank you for that. I appreciate that. Yeah. I mean, that reminds me, you know, back when I, I was writing for the comics, um, that that was kind of the one of the most important things that I took away from that experience was the ability to write quickly to demand because the same thing you know that this was a monthly comic book it, it, there was no like writer's block that was not allowed it, it, you know you just had to you had to turn it around you had to get your lines in and the artist would have the pages back to you and you would have to you know fill in the rest of the dialogue it it all had to work like a like a finely tuned machine and I got I came out of there thinking, not only can I do this, but but it was like, wow, you know what I'm turning around in this very limited period of time is actually not that bad. You know, it's actually pretty good. And that gave me more a little bit more confidence as a writer. And I think I think that's important, right, to feel like you don't have to spend like, you know, weeks and months laboring over a sentence in order to, to turn in something that's good enough. Yeah. And having the confidence during the interview process of like, I can do this, give right. me a shot. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, at this point, Beth, you're probably, you know, you can step into any interview situation for for a gaming, uh, a game writing job and and assert with confidence that you're able to meet any of the demands that they may, may have. I hope so. <laughs> so if there's any, you know, rich, you know, programmer out there, <laughs> you can hire me. <laughs> you never know. <laughs> just just drop that you wrote for Star Wars and you got the job pretty much. That definitely <laughs> does help, actually. But yeah, for sure. I'm Star sure. Wars or Star <laughs> Trek, one of them. You know? Yeah. <laughs> no, that goes a long way everywhere, I think. that's You just mentioned that and people are like, oh, yes, very much in awe. Except among my mom's friends. <laughs> yeah. Can I ask a quick question? Please. Do... Uh, Joseph and Beth, do you have a website that we can direct people to? Yeah, I'm at BethRevis.com. Okay. Everything's there. And I do, but it hasn't been updated in a very long time. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I've been focused so much on teaching and school and the other projects that I haven't really had time to update it. Okay. Um, but we can link them, I guess. <laughs> and I want to remind uh, our attendees that if you have a question you'd like us to pose to um, Beth or Joe, please just type it into the chat. There's a lot. There's just, oh, are there? Do you want to grab a couple, Melissa? Yeah. Yeah. It's a fast and furious chat. It, is, it is. It is. Okay. Let's see. Um, okay, with the success of the Last of Us adaptation, will this change the landscape? I hope mm. so. That is a masterpiece. I don't know who has seen that show, but the game was a masterpiece, and it's by the same writer that did the game yeah. that's doing the show. Oh, my Let me God, just say so that I haven't, I haven't watched the last episode yet, so okay. Yes. I won't. Don't, I, please don't no spoil spoilers. <laughs> but oh my god, it's so good. Like there's never, in my experience, ever been a game to show adaptation as good as this one. Mm-hmm. Um, with The Witcher was a close one, season one. Season two, not so much, and that's why Henry Cavill's leaving uh, because they're trying to destroy the lore, and Henry Cavill's having none of it, so he's gone. But um, yeah, he's a he's a real gamer. I mean, he's and yeah. and, and 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 sci-fi reader, right? He he's he's yep. familiar with with that that property. Yeah, yeah. He wants to do a Warhammer show. Yeah, uh, if you're familiar cool. with Warhammer, he wants to do a Warhammer sure. 40k show. Awesome. Yeah, 
Um, so on the, on the writer's side of this, always make sure when you sign a contract for your books to, to keep a close eye on your subsidiary rights. And that's something my agent <laughs> does as well. But there's always a chance, like like with the Witcher author, whose name I shall not even attempt to pronounce, that that started as a book and then or an anthology and then yeah. became a video game and then became a movie. So keeping an eye on those subsidiary rights, it's not impossible for your creative work to translate into a video game before it translates into a movie. Yeah, that's a great point. And, you know, one thing to mention to to um, students and prospective writers is that these rights are all separate. You, you know, when 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 Beth says subsidiary rights, they're not all bundled together. There there are different rights, audiobook rights, for example, um, and then, you know, game rights and um, TV rights, movie rights. All of these things are severable from each other. I mean, you can, of course, sell them uh, if you want, but a good agent is typically going to sell them separately just because you can get more money by doing it that way. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of interested in what you said about um, about this, about The Last of Us and the, um, and the fact that the, 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 the writer of the game or the designer of the game or the creator of the game was also intimately involved as a, as a co- I guess co-writer, co-producer, whatever of the of the TV series, is that like a new level of respect for the gaming industry from like the traditional power structure of like Hollywood and and you know TV and stuff like that? Yes, absolutely. I um I actually have a friend who works in film heavily. Uh, he used to be a camera assistant and now he's a primary camera guy. Um, and he's always teasing me, saying that you know I'm a I'm a game designer and he's in film and uh, film it, it always shocked me whenever i met people who are doing in films they look down at game developers and mm-hmm. my personal opinion it's harder to make a game than it is a movie i'm just gonna say it because we have video game developers have to create everything from scratch whereas in movies there's already places you can go you can fly there and film and stuff so mm-hmm. the fact that they're making this change to where they're respecting these stories, respecting the players that watch them enough to stay true to the original lore, uh, stay true to these stories that inspired gamers everywhere. I mean, Last of Us, the first five, five, ten minutes of the game, I cried. Um, And I'm sure whoever's seen the first episode, you'll know why. But the, the game did that to me as a gamer. So seeing the show and allowing other people to experience and show that respect to these video games, I think it creates a new light. You know, you'll hear people say sometimes to their kids, get off that dumb game and go outside and play. Well, it's not dumb to that kid who's playing it. And this is why. And now we have that thing that we can say, say like, see, this is why I love these games so much kind of deal. And I, I love that. I hope it continues. I wonder, I wonder if like enough time has gone by since the introduction of games and like the sophistication of, of games that that kids who like grew up on these games and teenagers and college suddenly they're in positions of power in Hollywood and they're like, well, they they don't have that same baked in prejudice against this art form. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And I think that's kind of where that change is occurring for sure. Lots of people want to know, Beth, how you got started, particularly in branching narratives. Oh, um, so in branching narratives, which is the the sort of choose your own adventure style, um, I got started on that like as a kid when I was reading Choose Your Own Adventure Stories. And then um, I actually started self-publishing a novel using a combination of D&D dice, tarot cards, and reader votes with lots of branching narratives in order to um, just have fun with my readers and interact with them. And then because I was doing that and I was already in that space, I was able to translate that into doing some video games in a similar style. And it's actually easier to write the video games than it is to write the novel in that way. <laughs> when you're when you're working on a um uh, a novel like that, a branching narrative novel, do you have like a big storyboard or something behind you that just has like little cards and and like string and and arrows <laughs> and everything pointing in every direction? How do you keep track of it all? I actually started with one and then I had to abandon it because the dice rolls and the um, the reader votes went so far to the side that none of the giant storyboard I made even counts anymore. Um, <laughs> I actually I outline it in Scrivener just like a lot of authors do for regular novels. And then 
I come up with different choices for all the dice rolls and do the dice rolls on video camera for um, my readers and then sort of basic basically make this big map for each chapter and i can only do it one chapter at a time which is a little a little frustrating but it's fun too that is so cool i i, I one time um my second novel was a, a novel that incorporated a, a role-playing game in, into the into the action and when it came time for me to read i read from the novel do like public readings of it i um i developed this uh this system a dice-based system that would determine what I would read on that particular uh, for that particular event. Um, it was a lot of fun, yeah, and you know, I would bring that. the dice and let audience members roll, and that kind of stuff is very cool. Yeah. One question. Yeah, I'm just copy that idea. Is it possible to work for a gaming company as a writer full time, or is it mostly contract work? Uh, do you want to take this one first? <laughs> <laughs> um, I will say that that for the most part, I think it is contract work, at least in my experience. It's been mostly contract work for a lot of reasons. Um, sometimes the, the developer is working on one specific game that won't necessarily translate or they're working on multiples. Um, there are some people who turn this into a full time gig and that is that is their job. Christy Golden is a famous example of that. She writes for Blizzard. Um, she's a fantastic, if you are interested in video game writing, you should follow her on Twitter, Christy Golden. Um, and she she writes for Blizzard and has made a career out of it that is absolutely fascinating, but somewhat rarer. Not impossible, but rarer. Uh, yeah, to kind of pay, piggyback off that, it is extremely rare, uh, as Beth said, to be a full-time primary writer for a game company. However, you can still, that doesn't mean you can't be full-time for the game company. You just, you want to have other things that you can kind of do for the company. And when they need you as a writer, then they can utilize you for that element. Um, and this could be um, you know, simple as, you know, you could do HR. You could do like really anything if it's, if the company's open for it, right? Um, programming, game art, things like that. PR, something like that, marketing. Yep, yep. Yeah, marketing is a very good one. Mm -hmm. um, one topic that I wanted to bring up, um, and we're, we'll continue to kind of surface. Um, uh, well, actually, here's another one. I'm going to ask this question. Uh, while I know all of you are writers and authors as people who have worked with, oh, as people who have worked with employees in the video game industry, what advice would you give to game developers, designers who are wanting to break into the industry? I guess that's for you, Joe. Okay, um, so my first advice is apply everywhere. Um, if you have four years of uh, development experience by going to college and getting your bachelor's degree, uh, and the uh, requirements for the job say six years, apply anyway. Um, don't rely only on those requirements because um, I had a friend who also did game development alongside of me um while well, i was attend getting my bachelor's degree but he did not get a bachelor's degree he actually has a gd dropped out of high school and just focused on this his portfolio was exceptional uh, mine was mediocre uh, i'll be honest when i got out of my bachelor's he was hired and i was not for the same position so you don't need a degree you don't need all of these fancy things to get into the game industry you just have to be good um because it's extremely competitive. Uh, another element good for getting in the door is uh, quality assurance testers. Uh, game companies are always looking for QA. You can do, um, you know, get on board with a contract QA company because a lot of these larger game companies now contract out for their game testing. Like uh, Zenimax Studios is a good example. Um, I believe they still contract out. They might have an in-house now. But um, anyways, you could do QA, kind of like uh, the movie Grandma's Boy, if anybody's seen that. All of those characters in that movie are QA testers. That's kind of their, their job. Uh, QA is relatively entry level. Um, and you know that just entry-level positions keep your eye on those um and, if you think something is like way out of your ballpark challenge. do it yeah for sure um listing everything you can on your resume uh the game design challenge is another great one uh you know get that resume fluff 
ask, you know, your favorite professor, be like, hey, you know, can I guest lecture for you in one of these in one of your hour long lectures within your course? And, you know, absolutely. And then you could put down on your resume. I was a guest lecturer for this course teaching these topics within game development or design. And that'll fluff your resume even more. And just another thing is practice. The last thing, I guess, because I'm talking a lot, but practice, practice, practice. You know, that, that's the only way to get better. Practice and ask questions. And get your Google flu up. <laughs> <laughs> so another question that I wanted to, to bring into our chat tonight is, um, is chat GPT. Um, chat, everybody's talking about chat GPT these days, but it occurred to me that um, that game design and the work that, you know, the work, the work that writers and game designers do in that industry could be particularly susceptible to um, to uses of ChatGPT, and I'm not saying anything for it or, or against it, but it, it occurs to me that that's something where we're going to see um, evidence of, of, of ChatGPT being utilized broadly. So I just want to throw that out there and ask for what, what you all think about that. Um, <laughs> ChatGPT and I have a rough relationship. Um, <laughs> as an educator and someone who teaches university, uh, I'm seeing a lot of usages that I don't necessarily approve of with ChatGPT. Um, it can be an invaluable tool uh, in terms of learning, but I've tested uh, it out myself, and I don't want to go into specifics because I don't want to inspire other people to do the same thing, but we'll just say that it is way more powerful than it has any business being um, to a point where my job as a programmer was like minuscule. Um, it's it just blows my mind how powerful it is. So you mean you tested it out in, in terms of like writing software? Yes. Um, okay. I yeah. Uh, and it it still required an inherent understanding of what was going on, but to be able to implement what it did, but it still did a lot of the heavy lifting for you. Um, and I really don't like that because it's going to encourage students to not learn. Um, and then, you know, they'll get through school. All, they may have all A's, but then they'll get out of school and try to get a job and realize, oh, I don't have internet access on my work computer. I can't get this on my work computer. Now what am I gonna do kind of thing, right? They're not learning those programming fundamentals and concepts. Um, so on, one hand, I'm not very happy with this, <laughs> but on the other, it can be a valuable teaching tool. Um, being able to ask it questions when an instructor is not available, um, because for the most part, when I tested it out asking questions, it gave relatively thorough answers, answers that I probably would have given. So if we could figure out how to leverage it in a positive way, um, I think that would be awesome. But as of right now, I. Mm -hmm. Stuff it somewhere. <laughs> well, what What about you, Beth? I mean, your 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 freelance work as a as a game writer is that something that ChatGPT could be used for? Do you think? Well, I mean, would companies think like, well, I can save a buck and I don't have to get worry about an NDA? Um, I mean, I I really hope they don't think that way because in my as my as a sci-fi author, my opinion is that the robot should be doing our menial labor, not our creative art. <laughs> right. um, but also, it, it kind of comes to the point of Chat GPT works really well for individual things, not an overarching storyline, and it can't make the connections that an actual writer with any type of experience can. So, if you have like 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 you were saying, one line of code or one line of dialogue. It may work out for that, but if it had to carry a whole multiple arc storyline, it it just doesn't have that capacity because it's a soulless machine. Yeah, very yes. well said. <laughs> and I think that's why it's kind of dangerous for programming because programming, there's only a certain level of number of things, number of ways you can write something in programming, right? Either it knows the language or it doesn't. A for, for each loop is still a for each loop. Variables are still variables. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, I mean, I'm sure at some point we'll, we'll somebody some gaming company will utilize this as a as a you know a PR thing. They'll be like the first game designed and written by an AI, you know. Um, um, 
Actually, there is a YouTube video where this guy did this experiment. He took three professional game developers and did a game jam up against ChatGPT. Um, I have not watched the video yet, but I did see like the title and a short synopsis of it. Um, so I'm, I'll go back and review it. But so it has been tested. So kind right. Of. <laughs> right. Yeah. <clears throat> several, uh, several people have asked if we, uh, well, if. I don't know if we offer internships. I'm not sure if that's SNHU or I don't know. I mean, SNHU does have internships that are available through that program, that uh, site called Handshake. Um, oh. There are, and I, I don't know whether there are any of them that are specifically in the gaming industry or not, um, but I, you could certainly check out the Handshake site and uh, and I'm sure if you just do a search for SNHU and Handshake, you'll find you'll find that site. Um, I got it. Um, there it is. <laughs> yeah, but that's the sort of thing that that Joe was talking about. I mean, even if it's not a uh, you know a, a directly game related internship, it still might be something that would look good on your resume when you're applying for a job. You know, I saw a question here as well that was earlier that was asking about like the, the discipline of psychology. You know, if somebody who's in the psych program is wondering like, well, how important is psychology in the gaming industry or how is important it in, in any number of industries? And the answer is it's super important. Um, but but you're not going to find a job in the in the gaming industry that says looking for psych majors. What you have to do is leverage your your degree in psychology to to something that they are looking for. Make them understand that that your psychology degree, in fact, is relevant and that the, what you have learned in your psychology degree is incredibly relevant in what you'll be doing for them. Uh, and then they'll once they can make those connections, then suddenly your worth goes way up to them. But you have to be able to see those connections in order to communicate them to the to the potential employer. Yeah. And there are actually game. There's one game studio that I know of specifically made a game called Hellblade Sinoa Sacrifice. Um, and the entire game was based around mental illness. Uh, it was a journey of a girl and they tried to create the truest form of. Visualizing uh, auditory and visual what these mental illnesses feel like. Um, and psychology was massive behind that so and i know that company is making uh sequels and stuff i see people saying hellblade was so good yeah they, they know what i'm talking about but um so so yeah absolutely exactly what you said paul uh finding those niche areas that you can you can contribute to yeah yeah i think we might have lost beth are you still there beth oh i'm here oh okay your, her you're, camera's you're, frozen yeah your camera's frozen. oh sorry oh, no that's all right i was just like oh no so <laughs> Glad you're glad you're still with us. Um, so let me see if we can pull out some more questions here. I know there's a ton of great questions in here. Oh, there you go. Your camera's back, Beth. Oh, gotcha. For me, anyway. <laughs> you were fine on mine this whole time. Oh. <laughs> So yeah. Beth, here's a here's a question for you. It says, since you are a writer, did you ever have to submit a sample of your writing to get a job? And I guess that's that's like maybe not necessarily referring to your gaming work. Um, so I haven't for any of my novels. I did for um one of the video games. I had to sort of do the do a trial run for a, a one chapter sort of situation. Um, not, I haven't for any of my novels other than the standard query letter, writing a sample, going through the slush pile with that. Um, but however, when you're working with IP or internally planned or work for higher novels such as Star Wars, that is not uncommon. Um, I didn't have to, but s some people do, and it's not a very rare thing for mm -hmm. that situation. Um, and here's another question I see. Somebody asking about a writer's portfolio. First of all, do you need a writer's portfolio? And if so, like what goes in it? How do you how do you build it? Um, I I did not actually have any type of writer's portfolio, and the companies that I worked with didn't care so much about my credentials. Like 
they didn't want to use my name or any of my titles or any of my statuses. They just cared about me getting the deadlines in. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was actually not something that was relevant to me in this situation. Wow. It's kind of kind of refreshing in a way, I guess. Joe, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> let me let me ask a question to you here. When yeah. creating a portfolio for art and design, is there anything in particular to focus on or anything that companies really like to see in portfolios? Okay, uh, so this is a question I actually get a lot. Um, the first foremost thing, uh, which a lot of people surprisingly don't really think about, and that's load times. How quickly your portfolio will load up for the one viewing it um, is incredibly important. So, uh, and I mean, that says something that I, that I didn't know right there. Because I, when I think of portfolio, I think of like some physical object, but you're not talking about that. You're talking about a file that is, that right. is then opened up on a, on a computer and is transmitted by, you know, electronically. And right. Uh, it would be an e-portfolio, right? Yeah. And, but that's this. That's I'm assuming that's just standard now. Uh, it is. It is mostly standard. Yes. Um, uh, I mean, you can obviously. So you want both. Right. You want a physical portfolio with your best work in it and your e-portfolio, because when you're applying to these jobs, you would have your portfolio, your resume, your CV um, and your application. Right. And you would send those in. And the very first person to see your portfolio is not going to be a developer. It's going to be uh, someone from HR. So what I tell students is, okay, picture your grandmother opening your portfolio for the first time and trying to determine if you are good enough to send to the next tier of person to look at your portfolio. So they may have 500 portfolio resumes they have to go through by before lunch. So, you know, they'll be out at the coffee shop getting a coffee, looking at the portfolios on their tablet. If your portfolio takes longer than five seconds to load, they're going to close it out and move to the next one. Um, you know, and the, I'm referring to these big companies, right? Like Blizzard, they get hundreds of applications a day, right? Um, so they'll be flipping through. So no, like big videos that autoplay on your portfolio. Always make sure that your work speaks for itself. They don't care who you are until they see that you can do the work. So uh, one thing that I actually disagree with that SNHU did for their portfolio course is they had an about me section as the first thing that the students were putting on their portfolios. And this is incredibly wrong. Um, The person really doesn't care who you are. Uh, They wanna see that you can do the work and then they will learn about you later. So always put that about me a little bit past your your best work. Um, And that's really the best advice I can give. Uh, Look at other portfolios too of people who currently work in the industry um, and compare not necessarily your work because these are professionals in your entry level, right? So not necessarily the work, but how it's presented. Notice how much text they have explaining the pieces. Do they have just a title and then they click on it and then it expands on the information that's being provided. Um, all of that stuff is really vital uh, to creating a good e-portfolio that everyone is going to look at and be like, okay, wow, this person knows what they're doing. Who is it? Where's their contact info? And then it, proceeds with the process, right? Um, so yeah, Dean Tate. I just saw the name in the chat. Dean Tate's portfolio is the one I use every time I'm doing a portfolio stream. <laughs> so one of, my, one of my students is in here. <laughs> no, it's me. I oh, it was you. Yeah. Yep. Dean Tate is the portfolio I use. Right <laughs> <laughs> So, I mean, that's not so different from the way it is in the in the writing world either. I mean, you know, when you're submitting, if you're submitting a novel, you have a, your query, query letter or whatever, I mean, um, or you're submitting a short story, the, the people who are on the receiving end, their their job is to basically get through the slush pile as quickly as possible, right? I mean, they want to find, they of course, they dream of finding like, you know, the next best-selling author, but, yeah. but. <laughs> They're not going to read 10 pages in order to make that determination. They're going to read like a, a sentence. They'll read your opening line or, you know, they'll read your first paragraph at, at most. And if if you don't pass muster, that's it. Yep. Yeah. And chance. so many authors will try to like pad their bio section of a query letter of like, I, I edited my high school's literary journal. And like like you were saying, that doesn't matter. The, the about me section doesn't matter. The quality of the work is what matters. 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, just because this keeps coming up in the chat, are there any particular courses at SNHU that will help prepare students for um, what you're all talking about? Most of which is so over my head. Uh, well, <laughs> I'd like to think every single course at SNHU in the game program or the game art program will prepare you for that because you're, you know, you're you're learning the subject matter that you want to get a career in later, right? Um, however, specifically portfolio, uh, the 465 and 495 are the two main courses that focus on portfolio development. 465 is kind of a planning course, I believe. Uh, it's been a while since I've taught it, so. Um, I think this is accurate, but 495 is definitely the capstone course where there's a core focus on your portfolio and kind of what you'll be building uh, throughout that course, revising old projects, things like that. Yeah, and of course, in the in the MFA, there's a you're you're basically building an e-portfolio throughout the program, and and when you when you finally graduate, you have all of the artifacts that you will that you will need in order to um, you know move to the next step of of trying to get an agent pitching your 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 book idea um a query letter anything an agent might want to see you'll already have uh a draft of it ready to go right and then if you're specifically interested in gaming if you there's very few courses or anything out there about game writing but script writing for film or, mm. or television is very very similar in the process um very similar to uh graphic novel writing as well like that that script style is a good thing to practice if that's what you're aiming for um, yeah, I actually would, I would, i'm i'm sorry go ahead joe uh well i just wanted to add that i do think uh, it's been a while since i looked at their curriculum uh at full cell university in florida they might because they teach film and game development so they might have a screenwriting because they do screenwriting as well they might have a screenwriting thing that kind of branches off into both don't quote me on that, but it's worth investigating because uh, they might. Yeah, I mean, it seems as though there's enough similarities between screenwriting, playwriting and and game writing that you could really make a, a program <laughs> out, out of these things or, or offer courses in, in all of them that would give people, you know, uh, experience in, in writing for all of those different genres, which would be really valuable. Yeah, for sure. Oh, I actually saw one question that I wanted to address, if that's OK. Yeah, go for it. Uh, well, actually ask, because I have my own theories on this. But any tips on making yourself right is the question. I've started a lot of projects and I have a lot of ideas, but I can't seem to make myself work for it. It may just be the ADHD making it difficult for me. Now, kind of my reflection of that question in terms of game development, is because that's an excellent question how do you make yourself do something so what i try to convey to students is to be a game developer you really need to be passionate about game development um i know most people have heard the horror stories of like crunch time you having to work 14 16 18 hour days and you sleep in bunks right in the studio while this has lessened quite a bit over the past few years it still does happen um, and it's a thankless job. You know, when the game gets released, they either love it or if there's the tiniest thing wrong with it, you are brutally, brutally criticized for it. Um, so you really do have to be passionate about this stuff. And you can find that passion and that inspiration by playing games you love. And what I tell students all the time is pick a game that you absolutely love, find a game mechanic specific in that game and remake it. You know, if you like Diablo 3 and you like the Barbarian class and the Whirlwind skill, go open up Unreal Engine and try to make that mechanic yourself. You know, download pre-made assets if, you, you know, if you're not a game art student in programming. Download those assets and try it out and try to make that work yourself. And then compare the level of quality between the two and see how you can get better at that thing. Um, and this will really motivate you and push you farther give you that confidence right um now i wanted to turn the question to you guys to see what do you think Beth? Well, for, 
For me, one of the things that I do is um, I'll, I'll treat it like a carrot on the stick and th there'll be a scene that I really, really love. Like if I'm writing a, a romance subplot, like I really want the characters to get to that point where they kiss or, or I really want to get to that fight, which is more typical for my my stories. I really want to blow the starship up or something like that. <laughs> I, I treat that scene as like my reward scene and I have to get through the stuff to get to that scene and I'll obsess about it and I'll think about it and I, I, I hype that scene up in my head long enough to get there and get through everything else to get to that point. Oh, that was beautifully said. Thank you. A, that was I'm beautifully said. That. I, li I like that. <laughs> like, because uh, thinking about it from that perspective, it's totally the same way in game development. Like, yeah. I know, like, you know, you have to do that game design document. You have to plan what you're going to be making. You have to do those things. But when you actually get into development, that's the good stuff. When you're open the engine and you create that character and you're like, oh, I get to do this skill. That was beautifully said thank you Beth. thank you <laughs> well on on that note i think we're going to have to bring our our chat to an end um i want to thank our guests uh joe and beth thank you so much really just awesome to listen to you uh tell us about your your passions and everything for for the for your for your uh, arts and melissa thank you so much as always Ooh, that's that. <laughs> for joining me